The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world. In America, the rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein, former publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome to Sirius XM's Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. The world of Formula One is full of interesting characters, all of whom have a wonderful story to tell. From kids on go-karts with dreams to drivers who ultimately live out their goals and aspirations on the track in front of millions, it's filled with talent, ambition, success, and heartbreak. Johnny Herbert was all of that. In the 1980s and 90s, Johnny was going to be the next greatest British racing sensation the hope for a country obsessed with Formula One. Formula 3000 motor racing is a highly competitive international sport where the drivers race at speeds of up to 160 miles an hour. In the motor racing world, it's the stepping stone to Formula One, the ultimate goal for would-be racing champions, but only the very best make it. In 1988, all eyes were on Britain's Johnny Herbert, Formula 3000's most promising driver. Well, he was, the, he was the hot property of that year, obviously, and he was going to go places. And uh, You knew that you, he only had to give him half a chance with the equipment and the car, and he was going to bring the results for you. He was a talented driver with all the tools, and even made good on that promise when he finished his highest fourth place in the driver's standings in just his fifth year in the sport. What's more, he is a 24-hour of Le Mans champion, driving a Mazda to the checkered flag in 1991. All the more remarkable considering that Herbert wasn't supposed to race again after suffering a career-threatening injury a few years prior when he was caught up in a major accident while running Formula 3000. As a then-champion hopeful, he faced the threat of amputation. Johnny was actually trying to get ahead. He actually got ahead of Fortet going up onto the, the Grand Prix circuit, and then the incident happened. We was doing about 160, 165 miles an hour and I could just see out the corner of my, my eye through the mirror that there was a car coming up the inside but there was only room for half a car. We made contact and the arm flow just came up just so quick. I just remember a lot of sort of banging and I remember my head being thrown around and the car spinning around and looking down and the steering wheel had disappeared and I did that I must have gone through through my legs and out the front. Miraculously, no one was killed in the crash. Most drivers were able to walk away from their cars. But Johnny was seriously injured. His legs had taken the full impact after the front of his car had been ripped away. After multiple surgeries and months of physiotherapy, Johnny Herbert returned to the track in triumphant style, although his driving form would be altered permanently due to the injuries sustained in the crash. After a series of trips through various other F1 teams, including a stint as the teammate to Michael Schumacher, during that very successful fourth-place team finish, Johnny Herbert eventually moved on. Following his Formula One career, he was in multiple racing series before landing at Sky Sports, where he was an announcer for nearly a decade, from 2012 to 2022. His view is a unique one, having sat in the seat as well as serving as a commentator on the sport. As the F1 season begins with testing this month, what is his view on the state of the sport? Who is the odds-on favorite to take the 2023 title? And what's the inside story behind the public figures we've grown to like or loathe? Formula One and its effect on culture from the perspective of an insider. In a rare taping in front of a live audience, we sit down with Johnny Herbert on the sidelines of the Toronto Auto Show, an event hosted by the Canadian Automobile Dealers Association. Cars and culture on the road in Canada with a driver who once raced in Canada. Hi, I'm Johnny Herbert, and this is Cars and Culture with Jason Stein. Great to be in uh, Toronto with you. Um, today's kind of a cool day. I mean, Mercedes has come out with its new W14. It's yep. all black. They've gone back to that. <laughs> yes. Um, Good. George Russell's birthday today. Yeah. He just turned 25. Scary. How young they are, my lord. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, he's 25, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about the rest of them who are also uh, in that in that same age range. But let's talk about Formula One in general, because uh, when you were racing around in Phoenix, yes. most might not remember the Phoenix race. It wasn't one of Who the most famous Who here remembers the ones. Phoenix race in America? And how well attended 1989. it was. 1989. 1999. 
Formula One, One was a One. little different in North America, <laughs> right? Yes. So let's talk North America. There's a lot to cover here. Um, you've got to be amazed at how far it has come in this country, Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. I go back to 1989. And I remember walking into the circuit on Sunday morning with, uh, with my wife. And there was a, an elderly couple walking down the street. And they sort of recognize our accents. Oh yeah, where are you from? I said, yeah, we're from, from the UK. Yeah, what are you doing here? I said, we're here for the, for the Formula One, the Grand Prix. What's that? And they said, well, we're, go we're going off to see an ostrich race. <laughs> and that was more popular than the Formula One race. The ostrich race. The ostrich race. So it just shows how Who won that? the American might, I've got no idea, <laughs> no idea, Mr. Ostrich. But it, it was not popular with Americans because they didn't really sort of understand it. And Bernie Ecclestone tried for many, many years to try and get Formula One more popular and it never happened. And the only thing that's been able to achieve that is Netflix. Yeah. And the drive to survive. And it's brilliant because it's just brought in a completely different generation, to be perfectly honest. And I've only noticed it in the last couple of years, especially when I go to Silverstone. Always saw it in Japan where the parents are bringing in their kids. That was when I was racing. But then it's those kids who are then bringing in their kids in the next generation. And that, I never saw that anywhere else. And I saw that for the first time at Silverstone last year. So it's starting to develop where the younger generation are getting interested in, in the sport. And the families are sort of helping that by bringing the, the youngsters along. So You mentioned Bernie, and obviously his, his impact on the sport um, cannot be uh, uh, overstated. No. Sure. But there's also the feeling that without him, Liberty Media and uh, Stefano pulled the curtain back on the sport. Now all of a sudden we had access to these drivers. We understood what they were thinking in the paddock. We understood the rivalries. Yes. Is that, is that what it did, the, the behind the scenes and the- Definitely, and, yeah. definitely. I think there was, a, there was a time, if you do the Michael Schumacher domination years when he was at Ferrari, right. it turned a lot of people off because they knew as soon as they sort of turned on the TV or they're at the circuit watching, they knew it was predictable that he was going to be winning the, the race at the end of the, end of the, end of the, end of the day. So, so things have changed in a much more positive way. And I think the, the only thing with Bernie, the only criticism, if you want to do criticism with what Bernie tried to achieve, you know, he did a brilliant thing for Formula One sort of in the late 70s, early 80s. And he really did move Formula One into a, a very, very worldwide brand, for example. But then I remember about, this is probably what, 15 years ago, something like that. He had Facebook go into his office, had a presentation about using the platform, and then eventually been able to bring in the new generation. So they started it, started, uh, started it off. And after one minute, he went, stop, 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 stop. I've got no idea what you're showing me on this screen. I've got one question for you. How much are you going to pay me? <laughs> and that was Bernie's problem of not understanding the social media world and not then allowing it to be able to come through over a little bit of a time period. He wanted it to happen now. He wanted that payment up front. But the Netflix thing with Formula One, who I believe paid initially for that Netflix uh, documentary to sort of come, in, come into effect, has changed, has changed the game. But Bernie didn't get that. But that's just a generational thing and not sort of fully understanding what can be done in a, in a different way. Like you said, it's, it's understanding what the drivers are doing and how they react behind the scenes. Generally, we never, never ever saw that. Isn't it true that Lewis Hamilton really wanted to begin tweeting and sending out his thoughts to the social media world? And Bernie told him, well, you can continue, but I'm going to charge you per tweet. I, I, I don't know if that's 100% true. But it is Bernie Ecclestone we're talking about. <laughs> it, probably, it probably was. But again, that was just the, the, the issues he had. He was always very restricted on what could be done at a racetrack. And there was a point where when you went onto the grid, all that were there were marsh the marshals who were sort of just putting the cars onto the grid uh, and the teams and the drivers. That was it. Now, once again, like we used to have probably in the... Well, I wasn't there in the 80s, but I think the 80s, they were absolutely packed the grids before the race. And I remember in Montreal, actually, when I first came here in 90, 1991, they were packed, absolutely packed. That disappeared, but that's all back again. 
but it gives it a really good vibe. It looks much better on TV. Oh, sure. And there's a it bit looks... of an excitement. It sort of really spices it up before it's even the wheels have turned. It looks great when Brad Pitt's walking through the yeah, paddock exactly. in, in Austin, yeah. as an example. Yeah, sure. Or the, or now the monetization of it, they're they're charging for that access and, and you can go on the back of a of a flatbed and go around the track as well before the race even yeah. starts. Again, there's all these little bits that have right. just sort of energized Formula One. But I have to say, the racing has been pretty good as well. Again, with the little changes that they've done, it has enabled the drivers to do a better job when they're actually on the racetrack as well. And that's something that was stalling because Bernie's wanting the big manufacturers on board was, was very important to him. But it was always them dictating. It's still a little bit of that going on at the moment, but it's not them now creating the next generation of cars, like these grand effects of cars that we've got now. That was through Formula One and Liberty Media and Ross Braun and, and Pat Simmons and his team to be able to get this car that allows closer, closer racing. So 160 times you took the track, correct? Yep. Yeah. How many times did you talk to Bernie? Yeah, not, not, not every single Grand Prix, but he was always, his door was always open. He was always willing to, to sit down with you. And I, I remember one, one, uh, one time I did, a, I did a game. It was Johnny Herbert's Grand Prix. And the guy that did it was one of these characters. You want to call it Johnny, Johnny Herbert's F1 race game. There's and a video I, game. The video yeah. game, yeah. And, he, and I said, you've got to be careful with the F1. You can't use the F1. Ah, don't worry about it. it was, he, was, he had the opinion that he'd do it then I fight it afterwards. Yeah. So I went, I, went to, I went to Bernie and I said, yeah, I've got this guy who wants to do this game and we're sort of very close to sort of finishing it off, but he wants to call it F1. He said, he said Johnny, that's okay. I won't come after you. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all he said. So it's classic Bernie's way. And to be honest, I never heard from anybody, but we never used F1. So that's probably why you it never was John Herbert's Grand Prix. It was a terrible game. <laughs> terrible game. <laughs> uh, you mentioned Montreal. How important is, is the, you know, they, they have talked through the years of, of the three M's, Melbourne, Monaco, and Montreal as yeah. being the three favorite places that the drivers like to go. Yeah. You uh, concur? Yes, and I think you know, we're very lucky that Canadians love their motorsport. And I think with Gilles Verneuve very, very, you know, years ago in the 70s, I, and Gilles was very, very special to my heart when I was a, a carter. You know, Gilles, it didn't matter if he had four wheels on his wagon, two or three or whatever it was, he always rang its neck. And that was something I really did sort of uh, enjoy seeing. So, so yes, yeah, so the history of the sport is very good here in Canada. It's, it's great when you go to, to Montreal because it's not just what happens on the island and where the circuit is. It's actually what happens downtown as well. There's a big effort to make the whole weekend special for the race fans that go there. And, of course, then when eventually they get there on a Friday, Saturday, and especially on a Sunday, there's a brilliant vibe. And yeah. I think every year we come back, I don't think there's ever been really a, a drop in popularity. It's always had that, which has been, which has been nice. Speaking of brilliant vibes, Miami uh, was, was its own vibe yep. uh, as well. And yep. I'm sure Las Vegas Hopefully. in November will have its own vibe. Yeah. What does unlocking the U.S. market mean for Formula One ultimately? And I'm sure there may be more cities to come. Yeah, well, I, th I think there's definitely a willingness to obviously spread, spread its wings. There's, you know, there's talk about doing sort of 26 or so races in the future. A lot of people say, oh, that's a bit tough. I, I don't think it's a big issue. From, from when, I was, when I was racing, for example, we used to do probably 30, 35 test days during, during a season. And then we had about 17 Grand Prix themselves. But they, the mechanics used to sometimes work 24 hours the whole way through a, a, a weekend every day mm. because there was ending change. You had a sort of an engine you had on the, on the Friday, you'd change it to the qualifying engine on the Saturday morning, you'd change it to a qualifying engine for qualifying, you'd take that one out, you'd put the race engine in uh, for the Sunday. So there was a hell of a lot of work. That's all very, very different now. Um, but I think overall the challenge for the drivers is the same as it was. Um, but having America, I think, just brings this new dynamic to Formula One. I think it's a very important market for sure. They've always liked their motorsport anyway in North America, even, even sort of Central South America sort of like their, their Formula One. So we're very fortunate from that point of view. But it's just one of those markets when you talk about Miami, you talk about Las Vegas, you know, it's just one of those draw dropping sort of 
places you you go anyway to Vegas, but to have a Formula One race on on the strip on a know, Saturday going to be on a Saturday is going to make it is going to be very very special special. And I think everybody's very aware because of the brands that are involved with Formula One. The American market is a very important one at the same time. So they've, they've done it through, like Red Bull have had their sort of NASCAR team, Honda and Ford have always been involved with, with IndyCar or Champ Car in the past. But everybody knows that Formula One is the ultimate of, of motorsport and you've got to be able to try and promote that brand. And America is one place that hasn't quite been able to, to achieve. Now it's in a very, very good place to make the whole show better and, and, and engaging for people. And I know... The whole of North America, engagement is a very, very important thing. You know, when I, when I go in the city here in Toronto and when you see where the, the ice hockey stadium is and the basketball stadium and everything else, down, in, down in, in America, it's the same thing. You know, they're the big, they're the big draws. But right. you're competing against those, those sports as well. So, so Formula One has been very, very fortunate that through sort of a documentary, it's really sort of opened people's eyes. Are there more... Uh, expansion opportunities, do you think? I mean, there's a rumor of New York City. Yeah, I, again, the expansion is, is, is one thing. There is, there is something about burnout for, for, for the expect. people that do travel, travel, travel sure. around in the show. But as I said, I think there's a balance of where they'll be able to sort of have less time working on the cars, which I know is something that's going to happen this year. It's going to be a little bit less, less time they have. And I think that will only help people have the energy to get through the whole, the whole season. And, it, and again, it can spread its wings, and maybe there's just going to be a little bit of rotation, maybe where they can sort of almost pick and choose where they where they feel at the at the at that present time it's the right place to go. And of course, at the present time, it's 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 America. Let's talk about uh, what you've seen over the last couple of years. What you expect this year, uh, as uh, as testing begins. And who knows? <laughs> well, you 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 definitely have some opinions, which we're going to get to. Yeah. Um, what storyline intrigues you the most? Is it Max repeating? Is it George Russell and Lewis Hamilton tussling for the top spot? You said Lewis, you said recently Lewis is going to come back fighting, fighting hard this year, yep. given what happened last year. Um, is it Ferrari attempting to overtake in the constructors? Well, I'm in Canada and I go to Montreal every year. There's always a lot of red shirts. We've got a lot of Ferrari fans in here. Oh, I'm sure. Not quite as much. Yeah, not as many as I thought. There's going to be a few more than that. I hope that comes together. Yeah. You know, they, got, they started so well last year, it looked as if they were going to be the, the, the team to beat, and then it all went so, so wrong. A little bit of mistakes from, from Charles Leclerc, but the strategy calls that Ferrari made last year were just shocking, and it wasn't. Bonotto, who's now been changed by uh, Fred Vasseur, never seemed to accept it. He always said, no, we stick, we made the right decision. And you sort of go, well, people, even my wife sitting at home was going, what are they doing? What are they doing? <laughs> and that is a bit of a problem because sometimes you've got to accept that you're doing the wrong things, but then you've got to change the personnel, I think, to be able to sort of do the, make the right choices because you're up against someone like Mercedes and Red Bull, especially Red Bull, who are very, very strong when it comes down to strategy. So I hope that that comes together for, for a Ferrari can stay within the mix of the, of the Red Bull and, and Mercedes. The most exciting one for me, I think, is George and Lewis. Because mm. I think George is going to be a very, very difficult man for, for Lewis in the next couple of seasons. I know Lewis is very, very eager to get that eighth after, after sort of being robbed of that in, uh, in Abu Dhabi, as we all know. So there are some brilliant... Um, Battle's going to come our way between those two, for sure. Hopefully, as I said, Ferrari coming into it with Charles Leclerc. And then you've got Max. You know, Max is, is such an exciting driver. He has his ways. He has his edge. Um, but I think that's what draws people to, to, to watch it now because we have, you know, three, possibly throw four drivers in it. We never know with Fernando Alonso, let's see with Aston Martin. But I think we have this opportunity of having the, the new generation, which Max is part of that, I suppose, but then you've got uh, George, who's really going to take it to Lewis. Lewis has still got all the tools that he needs to be able to sort of win races and win a world championship. He needs the car underneath him, which is not, wasn't the case last year. They've kept the same concept. They've changed a bit of the suspension movement, for example, which Red Bull was working on very, very well uh, last year. So that might hopefully bring them back into, into the game. I think it will. Um, 
But then, of course, we've got you know, a little bit further back with the battles, and hopefully we've got those top three teams with the six drivers who will be battling it out. And it would be lovely for another one to sort of sneak in the back door maybe and sort of cause a few, a few issues, something like uh, Aston Martin, you never know, but Alpine as well, who look as if, from what I understand, have done some very good stuff over the, over the winter time, and they seem to be sort of fully prepared. So there's a lot of lovely stories with... Uh, with the elder statesman, someone like Lewis, coming to the end of his, coming to the end of his time, but still very hungry too to succeed. It's a generational change, isn't it? I mentioned yeah. George turning 25 today. Lando's 23. Yeah. Charles is 25. Max is 25. Yeah. Pierre Gasly's 27. It, it, we're in a whole new era now, aren't we? Yeah, we are, and it's a good era. They're a, they're a good bunch. There, there was there were times even when I was racing, there were you had sort of the Italians over there, you had the French sort of over there. Yeah. Um, and then you had the British as well. We had seven, I think there were seven British drivers at one point in the, the early 90s. But they never, we never mixed so much together. But this lot do mix together. And that's really nice to see even on social media posts that we see with George and, and Alex Albon, for example, and Charles Leclerc having a bit of fun together with, with uh, Lando Norris as well. And they have this wonderful relationship, which is really refreshing to be to be perfectly honest. And then they put the helmets on, but then battle commences when they get in the cars as Let's well. Let's talk about Max. You've been watching him since Formula 3 when you described him as a very hard racer, yep. somebody who had a ton of talent. Elbows. You've also said, you think that you really believe that he'll eclipse Lewis in terms of skill. There's always the generational things. And the man that always I looked, I loved to watch was Ayrton Senna. And I never thought we'd sort of see anyone better than Marcus Schumacher sort of turned up and sort of dominated in the way he did. And then Lewis sort of turned up and was the sort of the next thing. But each, each time that's happened, they're better than the last one. And I think Max is in this very, very similar position of his racecraft, his, his ability to absorb all the pressures that are thrown onto a Formula One's driver's shoulders, absorb it, and then just deliver every single time he gets on the track, like Lewis does. And that's where the other, the other drivers around them, from a, from a Sergio Perez with Max, um, George, I think is probably the one who's going to be able to achieve that, to Carlos Sainz against um, uh, Charles Leclerc. They can, they can beat, he can beat, Carlos can beat Charles, Sergio can beat Max, and George, you're going to have to wait and see, can beat uh, Lewis. Can they do it every single Grand Prix? That's where these guys are very, very special. And that's where, at the moment, Max is, is unbelievably good now from last year. He'd be better this year, and he'd be better next year. And he would just get better and better and better. But it's this new generation you've brought up that I think will be able to sort of follow him. And then eventually, they will be able to all jump on his shoulders. And I think we've got just a wonderful future of these young guys that are very very hungry to succeed but the man at the moment who's just i, f I find unbelievable to watch is max yeah the perseverance the different. skill it's the talent yeah well in in american football we we obviously saw the recently retired tom brady yeah in uh lionel messi brought argentina it's it's last world cup lebron james just broke the nba scoring record yeah they're all athletes that are the best of the best in, yeah. their, in their own way what separates them from their peers I think the difference is in, in probably all sports, but especially Formula One, is when I started, just for example, uh, we, we had mobile phones, but they were just very basic mobile phones. No one texted each other in those days. And then the only way I learnt a circuit, remember Indianapolis, I think in 2000, was the first time I used a PlayStation to learn the circuit in Indianapolis. Now these guys have the simulators, they have the CFD computers that the guys are using to be able to develop the car. They have, then have the um, ability to, uh, to, to know a circuit a thousand times over before they've even got there. So the whole mentality is different. I used to turn up at my first Grand Prix and I had to go around either on a bike or walk around. And then you learnt it actually when you got in the car for the first practice. But the engine, engineers see that as a total waste of time. The driver needs to be totally on it as soon as he gets out there for that very first lap on, on Friday. But they have all these tools now that enable them to, to do that. And that's where I think they've, they've evolved into, I don't know, the, almost like the perfect drivers because they've just got all these tools that they can sort of play with and use 
and use it to their advantage once they get in the cars. What? But not all of them can do that. That's why I said someone like Valtteri Bottas with uh, Lewis Hamilton. Again, someone who could beat Lewis, but he could only do it two times a year. But Lewis was able to sort of find a way, and the special ones always do that, I think, in all sports, to find a way of doing it every single time. Okay, Tiger Woods, exactly the same thing. You know, but they change the whole way that that you do that particular sport because it evolves and it just becomes, um, you know, so much, so much more, I don't know, difficult for the ones who haven't quite got that ability to absorb all that information that's being thrown at them. Well, Johnny, you probably trained a little differently than they train now, right? Yeah, did. <laughs> and that's something, yes, fitness has changed. You know, right. I, I remember we had Gatorade, if I go back to that sort of Phoenix show, we had Gatorade. It was terrible stuff. It was really, I used to drink sort of a, a, a bottle of, of Gatorade and I was in the toilet every 10 minutes having a wee. It was awful stuff. But that was the very early days of that, where now they're all so fine-tuned with all the food intake that they have and the, the drinks that they have. And when I was with, Mike, with Michael Schumacher, for example, I, his trainer, we, he gave me the same food that Michael had. But that didn't work for both of us, where now everybody has their own um, um, ability to have what works for their bodies. And that's where the sort of it's changed. And then you get the mental thing that comes into the same time. So all the, everything you, you, you take in makes this much, much sharper. You, you mentioned Michael and racing alongside him. What was he like? He, he, was good. he had a very good British sense of humour when he wanted. He was, he was tough as nails when, when, he was, when we were in the engineering room. So he was working very hard with his engineer. The one thing that he was very good at as well is if there was, uh, if he felt there was, a, there was an issue. And the, the one issue, the only story, one story I've got is when I was doing my second Grand Prix, I think in Argentina, it was the first time we'd been back to Argentina for a few years. So on, on a Thursday, we got an hour extra practice and I was a thousandth of a second quicker than Michael and as we're walking back after the engineering meeting he, he was walking with uh, his wife and my wife and he sort of said to me sir this is there Johnny there's, there's things that you do that you probably don't want me to see and there's things I do that I don't want you to see so you know the data maybe we should think about the data you know not sort of sharing the data as much I said, well I said that's you know the data's there because that's that's the way we go about racing it's always been there to share so we can sort of improve process so he said yeah but I'm I'm not sure that that's something I'm sort of willing to do and then the next day I went in and Flavio Briatore who was who was the team principal at the time had asked, Michael had asked him, he didn't want me to see his data, and he applied that. He could see mine, mm -hmm. but I couldn't see his. <laughs> that was where <laughs> he was, for, but, yes, but that was where he was very clever, because he worked with Flavio to take all the energies away from me and other teammates that he'd been up against as well, to then actually be able to sort of do the, the job he did on the track, and it was, you know, unbelievable what Michael He was about as even achieved. keel as it gets, right? Yeah, 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 but he had his edge. You know, he had, you know, Damon Hill when they sort of crashed into Damon. He won the world championship because of that. Jacques Villeneuve in that uh, incident he had in uh, Jerez where he tried to take him out. Didn't quite work out, thankfully, and Jacques, Jacques won that championship. But um, there was an edge. And the only other driver I find, maybe Fernando Alonso a little bit, the only other guy who's got a very, very similar mindset is Max Verstappen. He'd do anyth well, anything he, to win. He can also anything. be a little critical of his own team. If oh, you, very much so. If you watch the races or drive to survive, yeah. and um, most have heard him yell over the, over the, uh, uh, the radio to his, yeah. own, to his own folks. Some might call that passion. Other people may call it, um, uh, I don't know, an uneven temper. What's your view of that? <laughs> I, I, know, I know you've talked about this before. Yeah, but it's his, way, it's his way of getting everybody sort of completely and utterly mentally in the right place because he knows one little slip up could lose him, won the race, but secondly, it could you know, lose him a world championship. And Michael had a very similar mindset to that. And he, Michael's way of winning a championship was winning as quickly as you possibly could. If he won it in July, he had done his job. For Formula One, it wasn't a good thing because obviously the championship was all sort of done and dusted. But Max is in a very, has a very, very similar way of doing it. I think Lewis does, but it's not something you hear so much. You do hear him criticise the team in strategy uh, uh, now and again, which you never heard that in the very early days of his career when he was at McLaren, for example. Um, 
but Max will make sure that the team here that he's not he's not a happy chap and I think that's probably the best way of doing it because that is where everybody sort of realizes that they've got to up their game where Ferrari for example last year on the radio there was a lot of communication between Charles and his engineer discussing what was happening in the strategy and it was like the driver should only be look doing the job that he's doing which is driving the car to then think of extra stuff strategy that's not the case and that's where Max will be very very hard on his team to make sure that doesn't suddenly become some on his his shoulders the pressure are they playing it up a little knowing that everything is now broadcast all over the place There's games yes you hear yeah, many sure. games that yeah you hear it more probably from Lewis actually well oh, my tires I'm not sure guys these tires are going to last and then unbelievably they last right so it is games that they play to the to the other teams but they do it do it both ways and that's part and part and parcel of modern um strategy i guess after the break i'll continue my conversation with former f1 driver and sky sports announcer johnny herbert and to see my interview with johnny go to the karsten culture youtube channel like and subscribe to see nearly a hundred interviews The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world in America. The rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein, former publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome back. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. Now the continuation of my conversation with former F1 driver and Sky Sports announcer, Johnny Herbert. And to see my interview with Johnny, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to see nearly 100 interviews. Uh, 2021 in Abu Dhabi, uh, you were not shy about how you felt about the way that ended um, and, and what happened with Michael Massey. Yeah. Lewis was robbed. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I know Max gets very sensitive when he hears those words about being robbed. But, but Lewis was robbed, but Max did nothing wrong. You can't blame Max in any way. Some people say, oh, but he should have given it back to, to Lewis or they should have reversed the, the finishing order. But you, you, can't, you can't do that. The whole way that the structure was done, it was the wrong decision for Michael Massey, unbelievably. I don't know how he, how he cocked it up so much, but... <laughs> But there was you couldn't you couldn't change the result in any, in any in any way. But yes, he was robbed. It was a shame the way that it turned out because there should have been one extra lap um, when the safety car was brought in, which he didn't do. And then of course there was only that one lap. And then the one thing I hated as well during that sort of season, which has now been stopped, was where you had Christian Horner and uh, Toto Wolff, but mainly Christian banging on the radio the whole time, trying to change the 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 uh, result of the race like maybe, nfl coaches stuff. talking to the referee yeah 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 and i did i didn't find that sort of very professional to be perfectly honest so it's, it's now been stopped which is a, which is a good thing um is it so does it make it more engaging for the race fans i'm not sure personally i'd rather it be the drivers show us the wow factor you spent 10 years with Sky Sports. Did your <clears throat> comments cost you your job there? I, I, I would not be surprised. I think it does upset people. It's, you know, it's a very sensitive little um, um, place to be. And when you sort of do sort of tell the truth, I think, as I was, I was saying it, people do get very sort of knocked about it. You say, well, yeah, but that's, that's what happened. You can't deny it. But it's, it's something that affects their brand. And it's the brand that is the most important thing. So that's where sometimes possibly the, the, that was the case. But I, again, I stand by by everything I, I did because I think I was, I was fair, right, you could argue, um, if I was, was or not. But I think over, over my period of sort of time there, yeah, I think I was always fair and open to the decision I made. And if anybody wanted to criticise it, fine. But you've got a bit, it's like anything. You, I remember the, the crash with Lewis from in Monza where he, Max landed on top of him. And there was all this thing, oh, well, Lewis should have given him more room. And it's like, but, but, when they crashed in Silverstone, you were saying Lewis should have moved out of the way, which was probably right, the way the rules are written. 
But Max could have moved out of the way because it was the same thing. When you're ahead, they always say, right, if you're ahead, that's your, your corner. If you go to Monza, well, Lewis was, at, Lewis was ahead, so it's his corner. But he's got to move out of the way this time around. And I was critical of Max from, from that well, point of view. Max stopped talking to Ted Kravitz Yeah, but year. again, the same thing. And right. that was when he brought out about Robbed, right. where Lewis was robbed. And he took it you know, really personally. But I, again, I don't quite understand why he's, he gets so upset because it doesn't matter. And if he really, really looks at it, you know, he was lucky. And if he, if he didn't have that luck, he wouldn't have won that, that first World Championship. So. Johnny, I want to talk about your, your racing career for a moment, and in particular the accident uh, that you had. But I want to draw a parallel between the racing injury and the perseverance that you needed to get through that, yeah. and perhaps a lesson in perseverance that you're applying to your next chapter mm -hmm. now that Sky Sports is over. Can yeah. you borrow from that to yeah. figure out what you're doing next? I think so, because yeah, it was lovely doing, doing the, uh, the Sky stuff. Um, but there are still so many other things out there. You can, there's a lot of things that are still within the bubble that you can get involved with, with, um, with, with talking with race fans that sort of come to that weekend in the hospitality that, that, that they have, for example. You know, you have a lot more, um, I think, different um, technology that's coming into motorsport. And Formula E is one of those. So there's always opportunities maybe with, with Formula E as well. So there's a lot of other things that sort of can can be done and if you're understanding of that and willing to work for it you know there is always that chance that you can have fun I, I'm, I've always enjoyed the talk with the race fans and trying to sort of give a little bit of an understanding of what it's like to be in the cockpit and you know, what the guys are doing on the racetrack at that given weekend for example so I enjoy that and I spend I always used to get moaned at when I was racing that I was always the last man to leave when we were at a sponsor event for example but I found that to be very important actually because if it wasn't for those sponsors if it wasn't for those race fans I wouldn't have been racing around a, around a track in a Formula One car so I, so I know how important that is. When you think back to your racing career what, what comes to mind? <laughs> I think mainly the, the, the accident, which we're probably we were going to talk about anyway, but I think that just sort of held me back and it, it frustrates me that I, I made the decision that I made on the, on the restart of that, that uh, weekend I crashed at Brands Hatch. So but, I'm, but I'm very, very happy with how I dug deep to, to give my chance that, that shot of getting into Formula One car. Because when I had the accident, I wasn't in Formula One. I was very, very close. I was the sort of the new man that everybody wanted. I did a test before I had the crash at Brands Hatch. Enzo Ferrari wanted to meet me when I went to the, uh, the Brands Hatch race the following weekend, um, or that week, that weekend. Frank Williams was there uh, in the Sunday morning. He wanted to have a chat with me. Chat with me. Um, Peter Collins, who was at Benetton at the time, I had a contract with them anyway. Uh, and then uh, Ken Tyrrell, he was interested at the same time. So I had everybody in it, and then I had the accident, and then everything sort of changed. But, as I said, I worked so bloody hard to get myself back in a cockpit of a race car. So that was August I had the crash, and I was back in a, in a race car for my first Grand Prix at the end of February. That was 1988, I, right? That was 19, uh, 1989 when I did right. the, the 88 was the crash, and then 89 was my first Grand Prix, and I finished fourth. And I wasn't even walking at that time. I used to ride around the pits in a, in a red bicycle. That was the only way I could get around. So, Let's just dig into the accident for a second. Scary on-track accident at uh, Brands Hatch. And yeah, it was a you, good one. But yeah. It was a good one. It was a good one, yeah. You tore up your ankle. You tore up your feet. Yeah, both, yeah. Uh, you tell the story of an amazingly humorous moment when you're still on the track amidst the rubble. Yeah. Can you set the scene for us? Well, again, there was, there was, a, there was a lot going on around me, but I wasn't sort of aware of what was going on uh, in my little, my little bubble. And when, when the crash happened, it was a guy called Greg, Gregor Wojtek who'd always been crashing. The race was stopped. The first part of the race was stopped because Gregor crashed into Roberto Moreno, who was a Formula One mm -hmm. driver as well. Uh, then on the restart, and this is the only thing I wish I'd sort of done something different. I, at Brands Hatch, there's like a dip where pole position is, and I was on pole position. So I thought for the restart, I'd park it slightly up the hill. So when I moved, it would be straight. And it just, I got too much wheel spin. I went down the dip and I ended up being third into go, going into the first corner. But I wasn't worried because I had a 12 second lead when the first part one of the race was stopped. So I had this 12 second buffer basically. So I had no, no problems that I would still be able to sort of win the race as a two part. 
Um, and then we clashed wheels, Gregor and us, at the second corner at Druids. Then I got in front of him and he, he, he got a good drive as he went through Surtees onto the Grand Prix circuit. So I, and I knew if I place the car in the middle of the track, he's not going to be able to go left, he's not going to be able to go right because he's going to have to go on the grass. But he just kept on going on the left-hand side, went on the grass, clipped my rear wheel. Then it just turned sort of really sharply left. And unfortunately, the way that Brands Hatch is on the Grand Prix circuit, there's a bridge that sort of links the inner, inner field. Uh, to Druids and where the bridge is the the Arbico normally on a normal racetrack would just go sort of go down the hill up the hill and then you go through Hawthorns but where the bridge was it went around the bridge then came back and then carried on going but when I got sort of turned left and where the the Arbico came out I just hit the Arbico head on and it, then it just ripped off the front of the car. Mm. My legs were hanging out the front and it span around and then unfortunately I went head on on the other side with my legs hanging out and it all sort of, everything stopped, didn't feel any, any pain. And then I remember opening my eyes and all I could see, the way you're in the cockpit, was just the top of my knees. So the fir first thought was from, from the knees down, both have gone. So I just remember sort of going, right, knock me out, knock me out, and then gas on my face and everything else. Then I remember sort of, as I speak now, I can't actually remember it, but I know I said to them, my engineer, when they finally got there, said, yeah, is the spare car ready? Get the spare car ready. <laughs> so, and this is where, that, and what, what it was, my, my left foot is basically hanging off. Um, my right foot, my heel is actually around the side. My toe was sort of, sort of ripped off on the left-hand side. Um, <clears throat> but I still, Somehow I sort of kept my, kept my humour because I sort of thought, OK, I've lost my legs, but everything would still be OK uh, the next day. So I went to the, to the, to the hospital. I remember um, realising, I think, after the operation, when my legs were on the, on the hospital bed, they were covered in bandages, but they were red. But it was my feet. So yeah. I knew my feet were still there. And then I was on morphine, I think, for that first week. And then I went through this weird stage that I was under a waterfall naked with my wife or my wife to my girlfriend at the time but uh, under a waterfall beautiful everything else having a nice cuddle and everything else and then suddenly like our skins were like banana skin when you peel the banana the skin came off and then we ended up being these monsters that then ate each other and then we reproduced and I opened my eyes and it would stop and I close my eyes, and like in a dream, you can never really go back to the same place in a dream. Close my eyes, and I go back to the same place where all these bloody monsters are eating each other. And then eventually I had to be taken off the morphine. Yeah. Because it was, it was getting a little bit, again, a little bit strong. But uh, Don't do drugs. Don't do drugs. No. <laughs> morphine, you've got to do it. If you're in that, that predicament, that's got to happen. But then I never had this, never had this doubt that I would stop racing. When I knew they were still on, my feet were still on, I knew then I had to sort of work very, very hard to get a chance. I got my contract signed, I think in, oh, was that was August, September, I think October, I got the option taken up. I was still in a wheelchair. My legs were still sort of stuck out like this. But that helped because that allowed me then to sort of work towards getting that first race in, in Brazil. I had a purpose to do it, yeah. So, wow. And it was, it was bloody painful, but I'm glad I did it. Wow. So. Uh, a couple more topics, and then we're going to wrap it up here. Um, Michael Andretti into Formula One. What do yeah. you think? I hope it happens. I'm so miffed when I sort of hear the other team say, oh, we don't really want them to be part of it. And it's just because there is this sort of bundle of cash that they all get their, get their sort of money to be able to go racing, which is absolutely yeah, an important thing. But I think it's great that we have someone else coming in. You've got the Andretti name, for one. Obviously, we Mario, Michael having his little time. Uh, at McLaren, and I think it'd be great to see Cadillac come into Formula One. So I really, really hope that that does happen, because I think if we get someone like Andretti coming in, we might actually end up getting a few more teams as well. You know, and is, is he going to try and beat the, the big boys? Yeah, of course he is. Yeah, it's going to take a bit of time. It's not an easy thing to, to be able to get a team. We've seen that with, with Lawrence Stroll, with, with Aston Martin. It's, it's going to take time. It's not an easy thing to do. So yes, I hope Andretti gets that, that entry. I think it's important for everyone. What is Ford's re-entry 
mean, I mean, you've, you've got a connection there. Yeah, right? big, yeah, big time. Yeah, my last Grand Prix win yeah, with the, the old lovely V10 Cosworth that we had for Cosworth. So, yeah, brilliant. Again, you know, history of, of Ford and Cosworth, especially sort of through the late 60s and early 70s, through the 80s, through the 90s as well. You know, it's just brilliant to have that. You know, the, the timing is, is fantastic because everything that's going on in the States, so it's great for Ford that way. And the relationship with Red Bull, you know, what a perfect place for them to be able to start in the championship winning team to beat. A lot of talk of electric motors and sustainable energy and yep. um, a transition within the next three to four years. Mm -hmm. What do you make of all that? What do you, what do you think? Inevitable? Well, and yeah, I think it is. I think we all know sort of, you know, the way the, the world is and how it works and how we need to try and help it get by and um, we have a lot of combustion engines sort of you know around the world millions and millions of those and the technology is something that humans whatever you think of how technology goes always find a way of making things better and I think if we can work hard I don't know if it's going to ever probably hydrogen will probably end up being on big trucks and buses for example we've got the electric side that's that's really good with the Formula E for example so that's really good and then we've got these wonderful hybrid Formula One cars that are the most efficient you know combustion engines that we've got out there but it still needs to you know continue trying to get the right ingredients to make the whole show as a whole as in as, as in motorsport you know an attractive um, an attractive thing for the younger generation, because I only know this through my, my sort of nieces and nephews, of how engaged they are actually with, yeah. with the future and how, you know, the green is, is such a big important part of it. And I think motorsport has always been very good at moving that technology really, really quickly. So that's hopefully something that it will continue to do. Give me one or two sentences on these drivers. All right. Yep. Michael Schumacher. Yeah, a, a, a man that would do absolutely anything to win a race. And I think he definitely achieved that. Ayrton Senna? Ayrton Senna uh, was someone that was, he had a pure way of going racing. He had a little edge to him as well when he crashed with, with Alain Prost, but pure. Eddie Jordan. <laughs> An absolute fruitcake from, <laughs> from Ireland that I would never, ever, ever trust. Never did trust him. Still wouldn't today, but love him. Excellent. <laughs> Lewis Hamilton. Lewis Hamilton, again, a, a, just a rare being that, you know, has, has had, a, had some tough times in his, in his younger days. He's, he's fought through it. You know, he's become, you know, as equal successful as Michael Schumacher. I hope he gets that eighth. He deserves it. Fernando Alonso. Now, ah, there's a man. You're right. He's a very interesting character that excites a lot of people. He still excites me. And it's going to be very interesting to see if he can achieve another race win. And who knows a world championship with Aston Martin. Daniel Ricciardo. A smiley, smiley face that <laughs> is going to be, he's going to be missed, you know. Um, but I think, you know, he's still going to be around, obviously, with his, with his connection now with, with Red Bull. But uh, things move on. And Max. Max, again, is a wow factor with Max. And I think it's something that that wow factor is only going to get stronger and stronger. And he's going to be the man to beat. 1991, you drove a Mazda 787B Indeed. to a win at yes. Le Mans. Sorry for the noise, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. This year, the 100th running, as I said mm. in the opening. Yeah, sure. What does Le Mans mean to you? Yeah, again, it was, for me, I had, there were always three races I wanted to compete in and win. Formula One, that was always the first one on my, on my bucket list. Indianapolis 500, that was always another one, which sadly never, never worked out. And of course, then Le Mans. And Le Mans was probably the most toughest race, not physically, but, but, but mentally, because it's just, you know, 24 hours of, not 24 hours of driving, but it's then getting out of the car after you've done sort of, you know, about three hours in the car, then trying to sleep. And especially when I did one in 1991, there were three Wankel-powered uh, Mazdas going around, the most noisiest thing on earth. And you could never go to sleep because every time the first one went past, you thought, that's probably mine. Then you try and get into a, into a <laughs> sleep. And then a minute later, the next one would come by. And then again, same thing. And then a minute later, the next one would come by. It was, it was the, the most punishing mental race that I, I ever did. But the ultimate 
it's still Formula One anyway. Well, it's never too late for IndyCar, Johnny. Yeah, there is, I, think, I think that's <laughs> I mean, part of you got some time Thank now, you. so. <laughs> yes, there's an element of that. But no, it's, uh, I've been very lucky, very fortunate that career that I've had, especially after when I you know, had that accident. If that had happened in this day and age, I would never have had a career. So I was very lucky. I Peter Collins, an Australian who was uh, completely sort of, I don't know, in love with me and just gave me that chance. To, to get to that first race and finish fourth in my in my first Grand Prix. But it's still lovely seeing this lovely generation, as I said, that we've spoken about because it's it's just fascinating to me of how they do the job that they do to the to the height and the pressure. Because the pressure they have nowadays is way above what I had. I didn't have social media. We had probably the BBC, I think Globo from Brazil. I think there was probably TF1, the French maybe the Italians as well, and that was sort of it. That was all you had, where now it's a worldwide TV audience from every sort of part of the world, and then you've got the social media on top of it as well. So the drivers have to deal with a lot, of, a lot more stuff than, than, than I ever did, that's for sure, but they still have a pretty cushy job. P4 in 1995, Le Mans winner in 1991, and future IndyCar champion, <laughs> Johnny Herbert. Thank you so much. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank, you. thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you very much. Oh. Oh. Thanks again to my guest today, former F1 driver and Sky Sports announcer, Johnny Herbert. And to see my interview with Johnny, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to see nearly 100 interviews. And thanks for listening to Cars and Culture. You can follow us on LinkedIn and Facebook, as well as on Instagram at Cars and Culture SXM. On Twitter, at Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. We'll see you down the road. Performances. Live concerts. Is there anybody alive out there? Celebrity guest DJs. This is Rob Lowe. Hey, baby, it's little Steven here. And more exclusives when listening to Bruce Springsteen's channel. Welcome, Bruce Springsteen, to E Street Radio, your home away from home. Great to be here. E Street Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 20. Do you have concerns about your heart health? Yeah. We've got a doc for that. Huh. Have questions about men's health, women's health, and everyday health? Sure. We've got a doc for that. Really? Interested in improving your exercise and eating routine? Yeah. We've got a doc for that. Hmm. A nurse practitioner and a registered dietitian, too. Wow. Sirius XM's Doctor Radio. Your access to top doctors and health professionals every day. No copay, no appointment necessary. Huh. Sirius XM 110. Who knew? Hey, this is Karen Hunter, and at Urban View, we have a family of tough people. We are about making change. Who are willing to not just work, but they have a vision. We demand that the people take action, use their power to make change. That's what really Urban View and the Madison Show is all about. We invite you and we challenge you to create the world you want to live in. It's not your typical talk channel. Urban View, Sirius XM 126.